Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former Special Forces operator, police officer, and current firefighter, Damian Porter. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his early life in New Zealand, joining the military in Australia, his lens on law enforcement coming from the special operations community, his journey into firefighting, bodybuilding, mental health, strength and conditioning, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Damien Porter. Enjoy. Well, Damien, I want to start by saying thank you so much, not only for coming on the show, but for getting up in your morning in Australia to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. <laughs> You're very welcome, James. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I thought about that last night when I was going to bed, but um, the, this, the truth is having my um, my surgery literally uh, 15 days ago, I tend to wake up about three in the morning with some pain and try and get back to sleep. And I was uh, eyes open at four o'clock, so it wasn't, I was I heard the alarm go off, but I was already up. So uh, it's not a problem getting up for you, my friend. So you just had foot surgery while we're you know, doing an icebreaker tangent right off the bat. I had um, knee surgery about two years apart from each other. And one of the most ironic things was when I needed to sleep the most, which was trying to heal an injury, the pain kept me up. So, so talk to me about, I know you're very embedded in the sleep and we'll get into that. What has been your experience of trying to get sleep around the pain of the surgery? Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a vicious circle, if that's what you want to call it. Yeah, totally right. You need to sleep. You know, um, I'm, I'm not training um, my upper body as much as I, I normally would. I'm doing maintenance so that my energy goes to healing this injury from the surgery. Um, but that sleep's broken. And what I'm realizing is, you know, you need to use those pain meds. You need to use those sleep things. Um, for me, it'll be naps. So, you, you know, your human body repairs in that seven, half to eight and a half hours. So I'll be napping uh, at probably about 11 o'clock today if I can. Um, I'll put some mindless thing on, on the YouTube and uh, I'll end up with a, a blindfold on and, and try and get an hour and a half sleep in a pain-free period. But what I noticed, because it's all well and good saying, you know, get the sleep and do all these beautiful sleep hygiene things, pain will wake you up. And when you're in that sort of um, twilight zone of, of almost awake and not quite asleep, pain seems to magnify and that will almost like the princess and the pea sort of thing and it wakes you up so let's be realistic um uh, get the sleep when you can and, and use tools um uh when you can to to offset that um sleep pain drugs i don't i think they're a useful tool at the right time and uh and sleep um sleep assistance so i say melatonin i would never use sleep drugs because that, that doesn't make you sleep 
So speaking of that, let's let's talk about Doc's um, supplement for a second. So Doc Parsley is a mutual friend. I've had an amazing success with using his sleep supplement. It doesn't snow you with melatonin. It's kind of getting you into that sleep cascade. I don't use it all the time, but if I know I've got to be up super early the next day or if I maybe had a poor night's sleep and I'm kind of wired the next day, um, I absolutely love it. So I know that you've had Kirk on the show. You have his supplement on your website. So talk to me about your experience with that. Yeah, you, you did right. And it's not, it's not a sales pitch. It's just I love giving it to people and, and doing what works. Um, I've helped so many people with sleep that have been horrendous. Um, the sleep supplement has, is just brilliant. I do the same thing, uh, James. Say I'm, I've got an early show, like five in the morning. I want the best quality sleep because my numbers are off. So, But I want good quality sleep for what I'm going to do. Um, and a sleep supplement is, is literally all the things that your brain needs and gets from your body through the sleep. And interesting, melatonin is the sleep-inducing hormone, not actually the sleep hormone. But um, what is, is great about his is it starts off with a human uh, dose of melatonin, which is 300 micrograms, rather than grams of it, which can make you quite insomniac down the track. But his sleep supplement is brilliant. I've taken it for, geez, probably almost the same as you, many, many years. Um, and... Uh, it's so it's so easy. It gets you very good quality sleep. Gets you too sleep. There's no grogginess, and uh, I love the reason he invented it, which is to get his fellow seals off the sleep drugs slash antidepressants and, and fix up their hormones. And he's got some phenomenal stories. I love the one where uh, one of the commanders quintupled his testosterone over a year. Yeah, well, we'll get into that because I think that's uh, probably one of the lesser known things about that area. I don't know if it's the same in Australia at the moment, but there's an explosion in, and I'll use air quotes, men's clinics, um, where it used to be you tell your doctor, you know, you have your blood test done and they were like, oh, your blood test, you know, your, your T is 251, you're fine. And you're a 25-year-old operator. Now it's one the other way. It's like, oh, let, let me have a look. Oh, no, 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 you need tea. And now every man and his dog is being given, you know, exogenous testosterone and not thinking about the strength training, the sleep, the nutrition side. So I think it's very, very, um, uh, what's the right word? Um, it's an abandonment of care, really, for people claiming to be under a medical community and not having due diligence in addressing the pillars of health before getting someone to a testosterone, tes excuse me, testosterone supplement. You're totally right. I mean, the picture you painted was horrendous. Um, once you put someone on testosterone, in Kirk's words, so in an actual doctor's words, not some, some fireman over here, um, once you go on, you can't stop. And, and that's my opinion too. After, you know, I, I started bodybuilding at third, oh, 16, I started lifting weights at 13. And what I've seen um, over the years, but, you know, if, if some 40-year-old uh, uh, seal can have the testosterone of a 67-year-old man's testosterone levels and in a year quintuple it uh, by only getting his sleep right and he was prescribed DHEA, which is a precursor, that guy would have, with the people you're saying, James, uh, been prescribed testosterone and then they had to inject that stuff for the many, many more years. So absolutely got to look at the basics first, just like a good nutrition, good exercise, good lifestyle. And um, yeah, that's, that's a shame to hear that, that that's the, the way it's going. But also, also maybe there's the start to looking at men's health because I mean, women uh, hormone uh, therapy has been looked at for so long and guys are just thrown by the wayside and look how many guys uh, top themselves 
Um, I, I've actually got um, some messages from from guys uh, around testosterone levels that wanted to kill themselves, and then they did go see a doctor. They're in their forties, and they did get testosterone, and they were the happiest, most productive, energized, um, lost twenty kilo men ever. So there's there's definitely something that people need to look at there and bring it to the, into the mainstream, but not the way you said there with a the 25-year-old, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's it's a tool in the toolbox. I mean, I think the the men and women that had forms of TBI where you know they're not physically able to produce testosterone, doesn't matter how young they are, if you've got damage in the brain, that that's definitely a go-to. You know, our profession, you know, that adrenal fatigue and the hormonal disruption i think chronically can can really mess with that too but um i think there's there's a large group of people that if they just change their lifestyle they can if nothing else delay the beginning of exogenous testosterone until they absolutely need it i agree i agree well for people listening i can tell a lot of people especially the american audience probably think that you are australian or maybe english um <laughs> but you're actually not from um Australia originally. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay, great. I've never been asked that question before. Um, born in Dunedin, New Zealand, um, proudly. Uh, my dad uh, went from being a uh, chief electrician in the Merchant Navy, which was a thing back then. Uh, and then he, he uh, immigrated to New Zealand and married my mum. Uh, ended up selling insurance, which actually was a good thing then. Life insurance, he had a relationship with people. He was actually the highest uh, earner in the country. Um, my mother, I believe at that time, was a, a, a mum. You could do that with the, the money there. Um, I have a sister. She's about 18 months younger than me. Um, and uh, and I moved on eventually to, uh, as I said, lifting weights and bodybuilding. But at three years old, she started uh, ballet and she went on um, to uh, the New Zealand School of Dance and actually become a New Zealand, uh, Royal New Zealand ballerina. And, and then uh, toured with cats as well after that when I went into the, the bodybuilding uh, uh, competitions as a, as a career in my younger days. So, yeah, um, relatively normal childhood, but I, looking back, a little bit high achieving and it would have been set with uh, or normalized with my sister doing her ballet competitions right from the start. Well, staying with your sister for a second, um, it seems like a lot of people that did martial arts and wrestling had a high level of performance later in life and I would argue probably longevity just because of the there is no kind of repetitive element to a lot of these using the whole body. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's very different than throwing a pitch, you know, in baseball, you know, thousands and thousands of times. With her being older now, has that ballet life served her well or did it leave her with, with chronic injuries later in life? Yeah, good question. And great uh, insight into what you said there because I believe repetitive sports is wrong. Uh, I love the fact that you brought up a, a sport that's not too repetitive like wrestling. Um she, after the cats, she toured to England and she ended up with a, a neuroma in her foot, so an injury in her foot. And for the people listening, you know, being on point on your toes, it's not very, that is very repetitive and not very good. So she had uh, that as an injury. But overall, pretty good body um, uh, wellness. Went to become a Pilates instructor, which these these dancers sort of, they, they tangent out on related things. So... You know, I think she's, what am I, 49 going 50? She's 47, 48. And 
she would be in the top 10% of, of, of how her body looks and performs now. So I think it's served her really well. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's done quite well, James. Now, you teach the martial arts component now. Were you exposed to combat in any way, shape, or form when you were in your teens or younger? Ooh, let me reverse what you said. I teach combat now. And was I exposed to martial arts? <laughs> so, I mean, uh, literally... I, I teach unarmed combat from military stuff, but I was exposed to martial arts when I was young, and, and that's where it started. Uh, uh, I went to, I believe my dad took me to judo when I was super young, and that wasn't good. I was like a, a 20 kilo kid being thrown around by black belt men back in the day. Um, that lasted about a month, and uh, I went to um, uh, karate, I think Kukushinkai karate or other ones, tried that watched the kickboxer, watched all those things. And for many, many years, James, I was I was searching for the the magic pill, the the magic move and what was the best thing. So that's where my start was with with that. Now yeah, I know you got into the weight training side. When we talk about um a lot of men and women in our professions plural, when I listen to their stories. A lot of time, there are elements of trauma in some way, shape, or form when we look back in younger years. You got into martial arts. We'll get into the bodybuilding as well. Was there any element of bullying or other areas that you felt as a young boy you started needing to protect yourself or creating the the the, um, the armor, the perceived armor around you? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. And I'm, I'm probably one of the rare ones uh, with uh, bodybuilding that uh, that didn't happen to. And I, I remember listening to Ben Kikulski, a, a, uh, a ranking Olympia guy, saying, he's a huge, huge bodybuilder. I'm only a little fella. Um, he had that armor on. He was always a little guy inside. So, no, lifting weights. I was 13 years old. I went downstairs. Uh, my dad was doing the ironing, and he has the weights downstairs. He's a rugby player, always lifted weights. I looked at the thing, and I said, oh, Dad, can you show me how to use those? And he did. It was just a thing. I didn't know that it built muscle. I, I had no idea about these things. Um, I, I transitioned to a gym at 16, and it was, it was a, a funny thing going into a gym. Um, I'd just been lifting weights over my barbell in the in, in the basement. And Dad's barbell, all I could do was, was shrug it. I'd lift it off the ground and shrug because you're trying to lift what, what the big guy can do. Um, but no, um, bodybuilding... Um, yeah, it was old school gym, literally old school. It was all the uh, the big guys and there was no women there. There's one exercise bike in the, in the corner somewhere. And uh, I, I was just reading the magazines one day going home and, and a competition was up in about four months. It was the Pan Pacific and uh, it was, I was turning 18. It was my last chance to be in that age group to, to ever go in a, a bodybuilding competition in the teenage division. So long story short, I... I thought, okay, I'll, I'll really do this. I went and uh, lived in a different city, trained under the Mr. New Zealand, and, and won that um, uh, competition. So that's what got me started. But it was never about armor for the bodybuilding. It was just, it was just a thing that I was, I was pretty good at. Um, for the martial arts, um, yeah, I think as a as a male looking back, and I've never thought about this. So great questions. Um, oh, you know, that might maybe be a bit tougher, maybe a bit more of a than I am because we're always trying to find your hierarchy. Your positioning in in, uh, in the social circles and your social circle is school. Um, look, I, I was saying this on a show the other day. Um, uh, <laughs> Mr. Kindness interviewed me, a Scotsman living in Sweden, and uh, I said, you know, you know, it takes 
bravery to throw the punch, the first punch you've ever done. And my first couple of uh, incidents, confrontations at school, you know, I got I got one punch or got a couple of punches caved in, in my, my face a bit. Um, it, it wasn't, it hurts. And I think I cried as, as, you, as you're not exposed to that, but it wasn't massively traumatic. I don't look back on it in any major way, but I remember specifically the first bully that I, uh, I hit. And when I decided to throw that first punch, there was another 12 straight after it at that same time. So it's, for me, it was about flicking the switch. But getting into martial arts and getting into bodybuilding was not about putting that armor on. For me, flicking that switch, even though my dad was telling me, you know, I, I'm sure I was at home crying one time, this guy hurt me. Um, you have to make the decision for yourself, James. The decision to be brave enough to, to fight back, to flick the switch. And, uh, and I did. Um, I'm not saying I'm a tough guy. I just did that, that one decision and it, it changed my life. But yeah, I hope that other people get exposed to making that decision. Yeah, it's a hard thing to do. I mean, people say offense is the best defense, but even in jujitsu, it was only, God, I don't know if it was even a year ago where, you know, I was a very defensive fighter. Some of the gyms I'd learned <laughs> some of my uh, stuff from you were literally getting beaten up, as you said, by black belts. I remember once getting in a crucifix by a black belt as a white belt, brand new jiu-jitsu guy, oh. and he's punching me in the face, had a big shiner the next day. He's like, get out. I'm like, I don't know how to fucking get out. Show me how to get out. Let go. Um, what's this tab thing you showed me? But, um, but it, you know, fast forward now, you realize, ah, okay. Even if you're defensive, if you are offensive, that will give you the opportunity then to get from under position to to go from you know half guard to to side control or whatever it is, and without that offense, which a lot of us that are I would argue a lot of people that are kind and gentle, we're often sometimes too meek, and having that courage to actually be the aggressor once someone has crossed that line, it, that's a that's a huge kind of precipice for a lot of us to kind of transition from. It really is. I mean, the military teaches you that. Um, uh, I, I, I saw that I, I started teaching this stuff. Uh, I, I did the uh, unarmed combat course in the military. I trained under some military instructors um, as well. And then I started teaching it just so that I could uh, practice. And a, a good friend of mine who was a black belt. And I said, oh, look, why don't we just try your, your black belt stuff against this, against what I do? And um, he said, yeah, good. Okay. And uh, we, we shaped up which is not a violent confrontation. That's now we've agreed to fight. And I just started attacking him, started chopping and kicking, chopping at his throat and kicking his knees. And he went backwards about 10 metres, which is unrealistic. In a, in a house, he got about five metres each way. He went backwards to the wall. And, I, and, and then once he hit the wall, he didn't know what to do. I would have then caved in his throat and, and, and chin jet and broke his knee. But it was interesting uh, that when someone's fully attacking you, and you even see it in UFC, the guy just has no option to go back, but to go backwards. And in combat, that's going to win pretty well. It's momentum of attack, as we learned in the military. Now, when you're in the the kind of high school years, what were you dreaming of becoming? You were, you were passionate about bodybuilding. Was that going to be a career for you, or did you have something else in mind? Oh, now I've never been asked this question either. So, <laughs> I watched Top Gun at least sixty-one times, to be specific. Uh, knew all the lines. So I was passionate about being a fighter pilot. We had fighter jets in New Zealand at the time with uh, A4 Skyhawks. Um, I failed the entrance exam by two points, one of them, the maths, I think. And uh, I was pretty gutted. 
uh, and the recruiter, I mean, I'm very young, I'm 17, uh, the recruiter um, uh, said, oh, you can become an armourer. And I've never said this before on, on a show. Um, I was bodybuilding. Uh, my best friends were um, New Zealand ski champions and New Zealand golf champions. And I was surrounded by the clique of people I was bodybuilding. I'd won the Mr. New Zealand, uh, won the, the, the Pan Pacific or North Island champs as well. And uh, I was literally ready to get on the bus. I was supposed to get on the bus that morning to go to the basic training for Air Force. And my friends convinced me, because they're sporty and don't like the military, they convinced me to do this this bodybuilding thing. So at school, I was I wanted to be, you know, Tom Cruise. And uh, and I I don't I didn't get on the bus. And I think the recruiter rang me and I gave I don't know what you do when you're young. I gave some some blow-off response. And uh, yeah, I went on to to bodybuilding was my my sort of career path then uh, for a few years. And uh, yeah, I, I if the recruiter is ever listening, I, I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, it worked out in the end, just not with the Air Force. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I heard on uh, the Spotter Up podcast that you were on, um, you mentioned just for a second that you were into blacksmithing. So how did that kind of factor into your career? Wow. Yeah. So at that same time, thank you. Uh, that was my job. My first job was a blacksmith. Um, so uh, I'd got out of school and I, um, I was getting the, we call it the doll over there. Um, basically, I was a paid bodybuilder uh, um, to uh, to lift weights, to to get what food you could on on that money and uh, and, and sunbathe. I was trying to live the Arnold lifestyle. You do crazy things when you're a kid, but of course they they want you to do a job. And so uh, this job came up, um, which was uh, making leaf springs. And I, I worked in a foundry, and uh, I was lifting, I was hammering, I was hammering that hot steel, that red hot steel, doing the things and. It was a man's job at 17, and, and it, it taught me a few things. It was it was great. But while I was doing that uh, job, I was self-improving mentally. So I was listening to, um, it was the Winner's Edge tapes, cassette tapes on a Walkman by Dr. Dennis Waitley, a former U.S. Naval fighter pilot. And it was all about, you know, your work becoming your, your your love becoming your work and 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 upgrading yourself and I went from that to becoming a, a personal trainer for work going from seven dollars fifty an hour to, to forty dollars an hour but yeah I was a blacksmith for about a year or a year and a half and uh, yeah it was, a, it was an amazing job. I just going to the bodybuilding I said because as you you mentioned you know you you were pretty grounded and you were lifting for you know the sport but I've had a. I'd say a handful of people now that have been in that world that talked about the body dysmorphia, some of the you know, the the trauma in people's early lives that led them into trying to create this kind of uh, manifestation of quote-unquote manliness. Did you come across that with some of the other people that you trained with or competed against? It wasn't a thing back then, James, at all, at all. Um, and I'll give you an example. When you said dysmorphia, I won um, when I did my my best event in that age, um, I'd won the um, Mr. South Island or some qualifier like that. And um, and then the the uh, na- international one, the Pan Pacific was on in about two weeks' time. Well, uh, you get so – what you do get is – what you do get is an eating disorder. That's a fact. Back then, um, uh, that that night after the competition, I'd had a bag of chocolates, and I don't mean a little bag. I mean my friends were to Cadbury's, and the paper bag was a foot a foot high. <laughs> um, bag of chocolates. I, I went to every uh, every food place there was, and I 
Long story short, I went from 69 kilos to 81 and a half kilos in about 28 hours. So I competed on a Saturday night, and when I weighed myself on the scales, I said to my dad, I'm, I'm still young. I've gone back and living with my, my, my dad then as, as an adult, which was nice. I couldn't really rotate, and I put on, you know, 10, 11 kilos. I didn't know what body dysmorphia was. Um, it, it wasn't a thing, and I lost that weight uh, straight away, and, and I went and, and won the, the Pan Pacific. But what was around was two things. One was uh, um, eating disorder, and it was about toughness. Can you handle this this horrid diet? Um, but I'll tell you what does happen. You just become a bit of a dick. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're self-centered. You're, um, you're selfish. You think the world revolves around you, and then you're, you're a, a, a beer with a sore tooth on this horrible diet. And, um, and that's why I got out of it, um, because you were alienating yourself from the people you love and, and making yourself King Dick, as it were. And I, I didn't like that in, in myself. They just had a great documentary go out on Netflix here. I don't know if it's made it to Australia yet, um, but it's on Arnold. I think it was like three or four episodes. Excellent, excellent doc documentary. But you can tell, you know, he's looking back now and obviously he got into the environment and he's a lot more kind of altruistic. But yeah, he was like, you know, basically talking about himself. I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, I was, I was a dick. I had to be. I got in the minds of other people and fucked with their heads and, you know, won again and again and again. Um, but yeah, so it was interesting looking at the psychology, some of his childhood trauma. There was some pretty significant childhood trauma you know, that led him down his path. Now, you could argue that can send you down negative paths or it can be fuel for positivity. And I, I think his, you know, he's been pretty successful in a lot of areas, not all, but a lot of areas. Yeah, well, I've seen a, a couple of shorts for it, uh, mainly because I interviewed um, uh, Chili Palmer, who worked on... A Extraction, Extraction 2, and then with Chris Hemsworth, and Chris Hemsworth did a thing in the elevator with Arnie, which was, was just really funny. Um, but um, no, for me, it's quite positive, I think, which is nice to see. Um, most, I, I, I always say, actually, um, every one of my jobs has been for my body. Like, I did the blacksmithing because I was strong. I, I could do that. I did the person, I got asked to be a personal trainer because I was a champion. Uh, I got into the military, but, and I thought I did quite well because I was uh, fairly physically able in, in the Special Forces and so on. So I think it's been pretty positive. But, yeah, I'm glad I, I identified it at a, a, a young period that, you know, you don't have to be a, a dick and you can go into these other things. I had a guy on Al Cavadlo who got into personal training a long, long time ago. Um, he's one of the guys now that got a heavily into the calisthenics side too so you know the bar stars and the human flag and all that stuff um and he's about our age too and still in great shape but one of his observations that was very interesting was back in the day he was amazed that he got the job because trainers were all bodybuilders and now you know we'll get into the tactical athlete versus the bodybuilder but you know when you look at a bodybuilder the skill set is bodybuilding it's not understanding the slightly overweight businessman, how to adjust his diet and get him moving or, you know, it's, it's a very specific thing. How did, how was your transition from bodybuilder to personal trainer? Were you, were you working with potential bodybuilders or did you have a kind of, um, aha moment where you realized that you had to broaden the horizons a little bit for some of the clients that you had? Yeah. Great question. Um, and most of my, 
clientele were businessmen uh, or business people and and uh, and aspiring sportsmen. I, I was lucky enough to to train some. Uh, it wasn't professional at the time, but train um, A League rugby players and, and some All Blacks and trained with some All Blacks as well. And I look back on the the, the one I trained the most. Gosh, I was, I was teaching him bodybuilding exercises to get better for rugby, and it got better for him. It was better than what he was doing before, but compared to, say, Professor Nick Gill training them now, I'd be like, oh, my God, what were you doing? Um, look, I was open to learning. I was a sponge all the time. I think that's what served me well. Um, we we were the first personal trainers in the world. Les Mills, Jim, started franchise personal training uh, back then. And I was there was about eight to ten of us. I was the bodybuilder. There was another bodybuilder there uh, who was university at university doing PE, physical education. Um, and then all of them were um, either champions in their field. So there was a runner, there was a, uh, a boxer, and and then there were some PE students because in Dunedin, Otago University was the premier uh, physical education um, university. So I got to learn from these people at the same time. You know, I'd have a runner come along to me, say, Damien, I want to get better for, for this. I like you because, James, do you, do you know what the oh, – I've given away, but the number one uh, predictor of success in a client is nothing to do with the, with the trainer's skill. You know, blonde bimbo trainer over there, why does she get so many clients? She knows nothing. That's because the number one predictor of success in weight loss or uh, fitness – um, training is rapport with the the trainer or rapport with the mentor. So they, the, the runner would come to, to me and say, "Oh, uh, you know, I want to I want to train with you, and I want to get better, and I have to go to the runner and get a, a, a running program." So yeah, I didn't try and run bodybuilding down their throats at all. The the dieting was was uh, definitely um, helpful, um, but um, it was about learning, about being open to to learn from everything. And and I myself went to to university and, and, and did as much as I could to learn. Um, but where I learned the most, uh, James, was communication. I specifically remember we had education uh, uh, seminars every two weeks from the uh, the start of this personal training. And I was on $27 as a personal trainer. I'd gone for $7 an hour of worth, of self-worth, to $27. That was hard. Why would I charge that? And I remember asking this question, like I've got a millionaire client. Why would I... Why, why would he listen to me? He's a millionaire. He knows all this stuff about business. He's amazing. He's clever, self-made. Why would I charge him $40? I don't feel good enough, essentially saying those questions. And she realized to me, she said, hey, he's that skilled. He's chosen you. And what I had to realize was be able to communicate from a, a dustbin man, that was what they called him in my day, a trash, a, you know, a, a, a trash uh, can driver, um, to an all black, to a millionaire, and, and communicate on those different levels and also realise your own worth. So I guess the answer to your question is um, just open to learning and, and trying to apply that tool, like we said, to the right person at the right time. It's amazing how many people in our space, first responders, military, have um, that imposter syndrome so loud, yet from the outside looking in, people think that we've got all our shit together. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it is, isn't it? Would that not come from humility as well, in a good in a good way of imposter syndrome? I believe so. I already do. Well, speaking of the tactical space, then, so your personal training. Walk me through to the first time you enlisted. Yes, great. So uh, I think I was 
27 years old. I've got that number in my head. But I was training a younger uh, guy. He was at university. And I don't know. I think I was training for him to put on a little bit of muscle. Um, and he told me he was in, in the army. Oh, what, what do you mean? You know, you're at university. And long story short, he was in the territorials. And for the other countries, uh, that's the reserves, it's the part-time army, the National Guard, whatever you want to call it. So he, he was in the reserves. I thought I was too old to join the army because you, you obviously do that when you're young straight out of school like I was supposed to go into the Air Force. And he said, no, no, you can come along. And uh, I went along to a, um, a familiarisation evening. It was great. I pretty much uh, came on to the next one and, and signed on the dotted line. And I joined the, the, the territorials, got my uniform, went away to basic training. It was um, That was my transition from being uh, – it was cutting the cord from self-centeredness uh, to team. So – Personal trainer, you're not part of a team there. Uh, I remember going to basic training and I had my, I was told you're not allowed to bring anything really of your own. And I bought a can of protein powder there and I hid it away in my locker because I thought that's going to keep my muscle on because, you know, that's my identity. Um, and uh, very soon, within about a week, I realized that's not good and you need to cut away this, um, this self mentality and work on the team, which is the whole thing that the military does. So, yeah, that was my, my, uh, start in the military was um, went to the territorials, signed on the dotted line, went to basic training. Now, now you get exposed to the, the role of the tactical athlete a little bit more. Was there a shift in the way you view training from the bodybuilding world to the application and maybe some different philosophies? Jeez, again, looking back, we're 2023 now. Then it was just pain. <laughs> we didn't know what was happening. <laughs> we ran up to the uh, gymnasium and, you know, a military gymnasium is wood and, and ropes and things and this guy's yell. These guys are yelling at you. What's going on? I hadn't run, um, James. I wasn't a really a runner, but I had to get into running to pass this two point four k's under ten minutes or one point five mile under ten minutes. Um, and I didn't know what the hell it was, but I just I ran hard and I, I lifted hard and I, I we did a sit up competition in basic training. I did a thousand sit ups and had very sore hip flexors. Didn't know what a tactical athlete was, but I knew you had to turn up. And just do these things and try and not die. <laughs> when I was little, my dad actually took me to the TA just for one time. And I'm assuming there's probably like like everything in the world, there's a spectrum from elite tax, uh, territorial army groups to dad's army and everything in between. I think I was near the dad's army one because it was very much... Um, you know, I mean, no disrespect to them at all, but but they were not fearsome warriors. They were regular people that had signed the dotted line, wanted wanted to serve in some way, but there definitely didn't seem to be, um, you know, a regimented element. There wasn't a fitness element. Um, so, you know, like I said, there, there's, there's a spectrum, the same way as a volunteer fire service in, in America. You have some departments that are, you know, arguably as good as any career firefighter, and then you have some, you know, that, that when the gun goes off, they're going to put it together. Um, what was what was the group that you were with when you compare it to the regular full time army? Half and half, really. You know, we had one guy from the Paris, from the British Paris. He'd been in the Falklands, and oh God, it was scary to us. I'm a young young guy, and I'm young in the military sense because I'm a baby. I've just joined, um, and looking back, he was just a a, a, a normal soldier who was middle aged. 
Um, it was a mix. You know, you'd have uh, a university kid, like I said, and you'd have uh, a dad and you'd have a, a young officer um, rearing to go. But, yeah, a whole bunch of different things, different people. And you'd have some of us uh, sort of, I was always trying to be the best. Um, uh, so I was, and that's kind of a personal challenge. I would always want to challenge myself and see if I could be the best, not because I wanted to sort of be number one, but can I do that? So I was always trying to um, uh, win things and do those things. So, um, yeah, an absolute mix of, of them, James. So uh, while you're doing this, you weren't full-time at this point. It was full-time when you went special operations. Is that right? Yeah, so um, if, I, if I paint the picture, um, I was territorial or, or part-time. Uh, East Timor happened. Uh, Indonesia uh, essentially invaded East Timor when the uh, separation happened and they, they, they uh, absolute carnage through that place, massacre. Uh, Australia, New Zealand and, 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 uh, and some British uh, all were sent over. We went over. Um, I, I got offered a contract to go on a six-month full-time um, military uh, tour. So we went in 2000, um, just after the uh, combat operations ceased we were with the UN. So I was full-time army prior, the build-up training, so it was exciting. I got to leave the, the civilian life and go and be a soldier. I wasn't playing anymore. Literally, it was, it was life as a soldier. And you were looked down on as a uh, territorial. You know, you, uh, you're a part-time guy. You're not a career soldier. But I wanted to prove myself to them. Um, so I was doing that. I made some great friends, went on the on the uh, operation to, to Timor. It was a, a brilliant time as a, a man-forming time. And, uh, and then a few of us, we got a bit... Uh, disenchanted with the military, I was offered the chance to to re-sign a, a full-time contract and I turned that down. Some of the guys even left their full-time military career and uh, come back into uh, New Zealand in 2001. Of course, I got my life to go into. So in 2001, I became a civilian again uh, for two years, did exercise rehab, uh, excelled at that, uh, helped build a business up and realised now I know which side the grass is greener on. And I, I re-enlisted in the Army in 2003 in the full time uh, in the 1st New Zealand Royal Infantry Regiment. And, um, and it was brilliant. That was the start of my, um, my, my new career path, 2003, into the, uh, the infantry, uh, infantry career. So East Timor is a conflict that you don't hear a lot about these days. You get there right after you know the the fighting has ended, and I remember being a young boy watching BBC and you know like so many of these genocides and atrocities. It was just all these innocent people just you know preyed upon by the few, as happens over and over and over again. What was the ripple effect of that that you saw through your own eyes? Yeah, true. Um, look, I was lucky enough to be to go to some of the places. One of them was a, a massacre that, um, I mean, what happened was East Timor, these people in the east of Timor wanted separation from, they wanted independence. And Indonesia finally succumbed. And uh, when they did that, they they let all the prisoners out of the jails, all the mental people out of the asylums, got militia groups and special forces to become militia groups, and they raped and pillaged the country. They lined nuns and civilians up. I think they shot about 100 of them in this, in this church, just hosed them. Um, uh, you know, you had... Uh, Special Forces soldiers and some regular soldiers just going rogue and wanting to go kill us. Um, the ripple effect, literally, we've been told this Indonesian army sergeant had gone 
AWOL and was going to kill a Kiwi soldier. We would do five day, uh, we would do COVID patrols, different day, different day links, but we do COVID patrols up to five days uh, through the jungle. Uh, then we come out, we do five day um, uh, overt patrols going hearts and minds, and and then uh, five days in camp. But when we were doing these covert patrols, we, we knew this guy was out there and he wasn't in our area. We didn't know where he was. And um, the guys in another area, they're in, they're all laying up. They've got one guy on sentry and um, in the day, and literally looks out like this. He's looking, looking, holy shit. And then he just hoses him because the guy's put a gun up. He's, the guy snuck up on them in jeans and a gun and, and found them. And this guy, uh, this Kiwi soldier, opened up on him and put a belt of... Uh, of uh, of five, five, six through him. And uh, yeah, the ripple effect was, was, it was still ongoing. You know, we saw the carnage um, that had happened. We were trying to help them um, get back to normality. There was no power anywhere. It was, uh, I saw a five-year-old girl carrying her two-year-old uh, uh, sister on her hip and carrying a, uh, a four-liter um, jug of water down to the river to get water. And that was normal life. So we were there, and we, I think we did a lot of good, a lot of good there. Um, beautiful people, these Timorese, and, um, yeah, really taught us a, a lot there. Well, I didn't preface the question like I normally do, but this is so important for the average person to hear, the civilian. Obviously, I'm, I'm a firefighter, but I'm not a member of the military because we get such a polarized view, maybe not so much in Australia or New Zealand, but certainly here in the US. Um, I would argue that BBC gives a very objective view to most things, so you know, that's my normal go-to. But you know, it's either very pro-war, very anti-war, so we don't hear you know, the, the horrors that our men and women on the ground have to deal with and, and the threats that they deal with, but also the elements of kindness and compassion. So you talked about the little girl, and I'm assuming that you were, you were helping some people like that out. What were other moments of kindness and compassion that you remember, whether it was from your fellow soldiers or the uh, East Timorese that you were helping? I've actually got some photos of that, um, uh, real photos. <laughs> Look, we on our overt patrol, so we'd go into a, a village and we'd stay overnight there because they feel, they feel safe there because the militia are going to come and attack them and try and, and kill them. Sometimes we put up in the ex-militia's house because these people came from those villages. One day we were staying in the school overnight and we, we got there about three in the afternoon to, to get ready for, for bedding down. And uh, there was a little watering hole. It's like 45 degrees, almost 50 degrees there. And these kids, it's down to the kids, James, they come along and we go, oh, is there a watering hole? And we're trying to do the language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what we've got, I've got this photo of us with these kids well, first photo is me, shirt off in my um, uh, camis, holding two kids on each arm. They're swinging off my arms. It was beautiful. And then we've got another photo down the watering hole, one guy in sentry with a gun, and the rest of us are all jumping in this uh, this waterfall into this uh, watering hole with these kids. And it was beautiful. Um, yeah. Those, you know, they had nothing, but that was life. They were happy. And um, I'll tell you one thing about war, you know, it's not right. It doesn't do anybody any good. I'll always fight for you beside me. I don't. I, I won't agree with what's going on half the time, but I'll fight for you because other people are shooting us. You'll fight for me, but nobody wins. I mean, that country's destroyed. I don't know what's going on with Ukraine and Russia, but the country's destroyed as hell. It's, it's it's not a good thing to do. But soldiering, 
it's um, it's a it's a calling. You're there to help others, essentially, and I'm there to help you, the guy beside me, mostly. Well, they say you know the history is doomed to repeat itself. One of the you know just the lenses that I had from all these conversations from people, you know, a lot of whom wore uniform, is that the one common denominator is the few tyrannical oppress the masses. And yet that's the the lesson we keep missing over and over and over again. You know, if you look at, you know, East Timor, for example, you look at Nazi Germany, you look at slavery, look at all these things. It wasn't the whole of Germany saying, ah, we all hate the Jews. Let's go do this. You know, it was a few psychopaths that then, you know, used propaganda to start leveraging some of the German people. And, you know, slavery, a lot of people did not benefit in any way, shape or form from slavery, but some became, you know, I would argue billionaires in that currency back then. So I wish we as a, as a, as a world could take a step back. And the moment someone starts climbing that ladder with ill intentions, that we just set fire to the fucking ladder <laughs> and get rid of them at the beginning. I would wish that too, but I just don't think it's possible with the media um, or the communication age um, and I say that I'm listening to uh, Damien Lewis's uh, book on the SOE, and I, I'd listened to Nancy Wakes as well, uh, her autobiography, which is phenomenal. And you know, I'm listening to a, a raid that the um, the special raiding uh, force has done on a, on a uh, harbour, and then hearing what the the Germans are saying. Like one of them was they'd um, they'd uh, liberated this boat, the British. Uh, forces had literally stolen a boat, a civilian ship, a huge cruise liner actually, from a harbour. They, 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 they cut the, uh, the anchor chains and they sailed this thing out of the harbour. Well, what they had actually done before that was they got all the uh, Italian and German um, uh, officers and, and uh, people on board the ship to go to a big party and they got them pissed as hell um, at another place and, and, and even got them... Uh, there was an unlimited budget. They even got them in the brothels and things, but they got them away. And the German report came out, yeah, these British came on board. They've killed all the officers. They killed the whole crew. So the communication, it comes down to that. And that's what um, one side's saying is, now, who do you know who to believe? How do you know who to believe? So I'd love your ideal, James, but communication. And now I can jump on the internet and, and get told something immediately. How do I know what's, what's right? And it comes back to my policing. I firmly believe from being a police officer, nobody knows what happened at that time unless it was you or the offender because the judge doesn't know, the, the lawyer doesn't know, the jury doesn't know, the offender and the victim are the only two people that really know what happened at that time because you're all hearing third-hand reports. So, yeah, um, communication is key and it's always been that way, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think that's it's trust, isn't it? You know, if, if you demand a news station that literally just delivers news, I think yeah. the opportunity for propaganda is a lot less. If you allow two news stations that basically are flagships for two polarizing political parties, you're never going to get the news. No, but I'm, I'm even going back to, you know, uh, the, the 1600s, 1200s, 1000s, you know, what was your, your communication then? Back to Nancy Wake in 19... 1940, um, she'd heard that, I can't remember this exact story now, um, she'd heard that uh, the British had done something, no, she'd heard that some people had, had uh, died or some, some, some uh, 
soldiers had, had, had killed a bunch of people and they didn't believe it until they heard firsthand from one of those people that were there. So they'd heard reports through the Bush Telegraph through this and communication, it's, it's trust and also being able to get it out there. Who, who puts their message out? So, yeah, it's a, it's a communication will win, will win the, the war, I think, at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you talk about the Falklands War. I was just doing some research um, for a book that I'm writing. I actually got one of the the um, uh, paras who ended up becoming SAS, who was on the Goose Green at that time as well. I'm going to be interviewing him next week. But the the misinformation and some of the, the excessive information, sometimes they were telling things on the news. The Argentinians then adjusted their strategy and ended up killing more British people. You know, So you've got to be careful with that too. Oh, and, and further on that, I remember one time being pulled into the New Zealand, uh, into our secure briefing room in the Special Forces. And um, normally when you get pulled in there, something's happening, you're going to go on a job, somebody's done something wrong because um, you're all pulled in. We're pulled in as a unit, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, what's going on? Long story short, the int branch, because they got up and went, oh, no, we're, someone's in trouble. Intelligence guys got up. And they were giving us an, an a, uh, example of how easy it is to um, – to prosecute someone and get their identity. And prosecute means something different in this uh, uh, context. And what they did was they showed up and they got an Air Force guy, a New Zealand Air Force guy in Afghanistan with a photo of himself that he posted on Facebook. So total public. And they were right. Now, we spent 20 minutes just delving into things and they got his photo from the Facebook and then they, they saw some of his friends on Facebook and Long story short, they went through some photos of theirs. Um, okay, they, they, we think they live in this city because I can recognize that sort of place or they did a Google image search. And now we go to the, there's something called the, the telephone book. <laughs> <laughs> they went to the white page in the telephone book. They went through, oh, there's only 20 of them in that, in that city. Right, which one of them is them? Okay, good. Now we go, get, we, we, this is the Taliban. We get the, uh, the, the, a photo of, their house from New Zealand, and we go and give it to that that guy, that Air Force guy in Afghanistan. Just here, have this. Now do what we want. It's that easy. It was it was an eye opening that one as an example. I got to say, I, I've got pretty good at internet creeping, trying to find guests. So uh, <laughs> I use the same techniques. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, then you've mentioned about special forces. So walk me through your transition out of the TA and then um, you know, your, your journey, not only into the, the full-time military, but how you found yourself with the SAS. Yeah, thank you. Look, 2003 rejoined um, the military uh, straight into Royal Zealand Infantry. Um, I got posted to um, a company there, um, Victor Company, and, and then I was into um, part of, the support company, which was uh, radios, uh, signals, and I was teaching, ended up teaching uh, our new radios, teaching to CEOs, RSMs, down to privates. I was only a private, but it's relatively good at this geeky stuff. So it was really cool. Um, and uh, and going on operations, trying to, uh, sorry, going on uh, exercises, being pretty good at that, being fairly fit, um, and getting off the guys. And then 2005, there was a recruiting poster for um, New Zealand SAS counter-terrorist team or counter-terrorist tactical assault group, it was called at the time. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, they, they went on to become commandos or known as commandos. And it was the uh, a selection for them. It was a new thing. I'd always wanted to uh, to be in the Special Forces. And uh, uh, what had happened 
the reason that that squadron was stood up was all the guys were going to Iraq, all the New Zealand SAS guys were getting the uh, the money and go to Iraq as contractors. So we're losing our black role, losing our um, literally the hostage rescue guys. So um, that team was stood up. Uh, I, myself and a, a whole bunch of others did the inaugural selection for that. Was lucky enough to pass. I trained like an absolute maniac for it, and uh, yeah, passed. And within like anything in the military, when once you're in something, you're you're gone. So within passing that, suddenly it's packing everything up and straight up to uh, unit training. And I was on the training course for there and um yeah just didn't look back it was straight on to roping and shooting and blowing stuff up and, and doing all those all those fun manly things and it was uh it was a dream come true well when i think of new zealand i don't think of a, a high op tempo when it comes to the kind of calls that you would call in a team like that i mean obviously one of the ones that would you know drop in my mind would be the embassy in um in london you know one of the first times that we ever saw the sas in action but, you know, we do have arguably a fair amount of extremist attacks in the UK. You know, it was the from the Irish and then it switched to, you know, some of the more extremists from the Middle East or Middle East roots, at least. Um, were you having a high frequency? And, and if not, how we, what was the training philosophy to keep you ready if you weren't going on a lot of calls? Yeah, it's a great question. No, we weren't having a high frequency of calls. Our job was domestic counterterrorism, which then got extrapolated to uh, offshore recovery and some other things. Um, the reason these countries need uh, full-time counterterrorist teams is because of the Munich uh, massacre. The uh, the Israelis were killed there because the German police shot each other. <laughs> the snipers were shooting each other or running away because they're police officers. And then obviously the um, the, the the terrorists uh, blew up the the uh, the helicopters on the airport with uh, grenades, and the, they realised, hang on a sec, these police officers aren't trained. We need people ready to go now. So that border into fruition. Um, New Zealand and Australia stood teams up when there was, uh, I think, it was the nineteen nineteen seventy something Hilton bombing. There was a a bomb outside the Sydney Hilton here, uh, and uh, and that brought it to this hemisphere. You're right; it wasn't in this hemisphere terrorism, but terrorism at that time was going worldwide. The uh, the passenger uh, plane bomb um, hijackings were, were all over the place, and so uh, New Zealand stood up. A, uh, New Zealand SS started the counter terrorist role, the hostage rescue stuff, and. Um, that was a, a directive need from the government. So no matter what, the, the New Zealand Defence Force had to supply that. And the training philosophy, which was the second part of your question, was just we were going to be the best all the time. And it was the unrelenting, you know, the, the ten is the unit, one of them is unrelenting pursuit of excellence. And, you, you know, you'd do your job and you'd be always trying to do better. The guys would pick holes in what you did, you'd pick holes in what you did, pick holes in someone else. And, uh, and when guys came from 2-2, we had a guy come from 2-2 to slot in perfectly. We all do the same stuff. We do the same as 2-2 does, same as Delta. I interviewed Pat Mack and Joe Hortai together. Joe Hortai passed SS selection cycle, but um, uh, was removed. And I interviewed him on that um, through a uh, – he got in a fight outside, but he went on to to join the Australian SAS and set a, distinct, a distinguished career there. I asked Pat and uh, and him this question, you know, who's better? 
And we we all say we're all the same. You know, grab a Delta guy, grab an Aussie S guy, SAS guy, and put him into a two two SAS uh, counter terrorist team and go and hit that building. And and you know, you speak a different accent, but you do all do the same sort of drills, and you know what's going on. Just like you and I go to fire, James. It's it's not that different. Even us in an American, there may be different teams doing different things, but we we both all understand the same concept. So uh, yeah, the philosophy was just. Uh, be as outstanding as you as you could. Be your own best. Challenge yourself and um, and and work together as a as a team to uh, achieve the best outcome and achieve the mission. So, what made you decide to transition out of that unit, and then where did you find yourself next? Money. Uh, four of us left the unit, came to Perth for money. Big money over here. We were not paid that much over in in the unit. And uh, I came here just for a year to make some money and go back. Um, the specific answer to that is uh, one of my friends was uh, over here. I didn't know who's mining. It sounds silly now, but he said he was over here as a scaffolder making $150,000 a year. Now, that to me sounds like, um, you know, somebody's going to give you a Lamborghini because I was on $810 a fortnight. I was in the squadron hangar sitting on one of my boxes. I got lockers, uh, lock boxes. And I was, re- I was watching, re- reading my payslip, and I got a text from um, from him. So I came here for a year, uh, fell into policing, went back to uh, – I left policing and went back to the unit straight away. I didn't want to be a cop, but I made my money. And um, and then uh, I ended up coming back here for personal reasons, come back to Perth, back into policing, and I, was, I served as a police officer for a couple of years, and uh, that was me in Perth. So a lot of people, I think Pat, even you know, years and years ago, said the same thing. It's amazing how many people in the special operations, special forces community have said, we hold police and fire to the same standard as ourselves. And when you look at it, when our, when our you know, elite warriors are off fighting in foreign lands, who's protecting their family? We are. Police, fire, EMS. So I agree 100%. That's how I've kind of viewed this when you are in a profession where lives are at stake, you try and make yourself the very best version of yourself. There's going to be better people in every field. I'm, I'm you know, juggling a thousand skills and I'm only going to be the best version of James Gearing I can be. Um, when you come from this high level of performance and, and training, um, and I would argue, I'm assuming equipment as well, and you find yourself initially in law enforcement, was there a paradox or did you find that same level of professionalism and, and uh, drive in your police agency? You've asked some amazing questions. Very insightful. Um, no, it was it was bad. And the fire brigade is way worse. Holy cow. We'll get to that. Um, so uh, I was scaffolding here for a couple of months and, and eventually got in the police academy, mainly because uh, I was supposed to be in the SWAT team as soon as we finished. Um, but they moved that uh, intake date. So, uh, look, there was myself, there was a, a group of about 32 people, I think, in our squad, our learning squad at the police academy. The police academy makes me crack up because it always used to make me think of the movie. <laughs> and um, there was a guy from Iraq uh, 1, uh, um, and there was another soldier there, and there was a Scotsman who was a city, but he was a hard man. There wasn't many sort of grown-up, Men. What we had generally, because of mining here, uh, it's not insulting, it's, it's factual, that we had um, some housewives, middle-aged housewives, they'd obviously, their kids had gone off and they can now do another job. Or we had young 
young white um, uh, males, or uh, maybe a bit of females, but um, no, no, no life experience. And then there was some, some grown-ups in the middle there. And uh, no, the uh, it was hard, man. Um, I mean, I won the awards. It wasn't hard to do what they, they asked you to do, the, the tactical training and all these other things. But it was – I loved the law. It was a real challenge learning the law language, just like um, the, the um, uh, hydraulics and engineering you learn in, in fire. But um, the tactical side was super easy. Uh, you know, I, I was straight away friends with the instructors – I remember, I remember shooting. So we shoot on a face in, in New Zealand SAS. We shoot on a face and we have a, a, a we aim for the mouth because you want to blow, blow out the brainstem so someone can't pull a trigger or stab one or press a, a button on a detonator. So we always put two bullets in the mouth. That was our job. When it came to police, a police is so PC here that you can't shoot on a human target and you must. You must shoot on a human target if you want to shoot a human because you, you won't do it otherwise. It's physically almost impossible. So we shot on this, um, there was a white uh, white piece of, of paper and it had a, a greyish outline of like a hexagon, I think, shape. Anyway, I couldn't deal with that because I, where am I going to shoot? It wasn't even a bullseye. So, so um, uh, what I used to do was find the line of where that grey met the white. And uh, I shot there. And I've been shooting for a few days, and this 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 instructor, she was a, a big overweight female, um, and um, she, I'm just shooting, just putting them all in the same place on that line. And she said, "Oh," um, she said some something like, "Oh, you're sort of missing the target." And the lead instructor goes, "No, no, he means to do that." So I shot a smiley face <laughs> in the target for her. <laughs> it's um, it was a different world, James. The the gear was okay. Um, the the police academy was was interesting. Um, the people around you. I was, I was voted most likely to kill someone to shoot someone as soon as we get out of um, of uh, police academy. But the bottom line is, um, it's so easy to step down once you're at that level. And what I mean by that, the first, my first job was suicide by cop. I was the only guy he would talk to. Oh, only person. Sorry, I'd be talking to him as a mental guy, um, obviously. And then some other cop would try and talk to me and he'd go nuts at them, like barking at them. And no, 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 look at me, you know, calm down, let's do this. And it's so easy to step down. And I, I loved the job. I loved using the mouth. Hardly ever um, uh, went to the other thing. Sometimes you have to immediately if you're into a melee. But, yeah, it was a different world. It was a culture shock into the civilian world. The, the standard of discipline was was much lower. Um, Self-discipline was much lower. Um and I didn't look down on them, but it was it was it was hard to come to grips with that nobody else was at that level that us soldiers that were there were, were aspiring towards. Something I heard a lot from people who were either you know high level in the military side and or just great martial artists and and you know behemoth of of, of physicality as well, um, male and female, is they hardly ever had to put hands on people because someone would look at that person. They knew they were athletic. They knew looking in their eyes that they were calm and collected and could could rely on their training if they needed to. So was that something that you saw, that that your confidence and your skills almost became a deterrent, a way to de-escalate a lot of times? Absolutely. Look, what I saw was you had a, a bigger bandwidth. I'll give you an example that paints a picture, and it would have been a, a, many other jobs. We'd um, we're in the main street on Friday night, and uh, there'd been a bit of a scuffle 
down the road, uh, a couple of younger guys had um, uh, had an altercation with an older guy. And these the police officers dealt with it. We weren't there. We are at the other end. The police officers dealt with it, just moved these two young guys on. They should have done more. They should have actually locked them up. Because at the other end of the street where we were, they found him again. They found the old guy and they punched him in. We've come across, and they've, they've run off. Me and my, my partner have come across this guy who's got blood across his face. He's like 65, an ex-soldier, I didn't know, and he's a bit of a homeless guy. So on the face of it, he's angry. You know, he's, he's been humiliated. He's angry. He's spitting blood, literally. Please don't spit that on me, mate. Um, and he's kicking off. Now, like I said, it could have been uh, stopped if the other guys had done their job. They hadn't. Well, I've come along and... You know, I don't want someone spitting blood on me, and I don't want to, and I don't want to put him down. He's the victim, right? But he could definitely turn into I'm going to lock you up for disorderly conduct. And he's, I was trying to get a grip on things, and I just caught that he was maybe military, and I, I pulled back my uh, my vest. I've got a, a yellow vest over my shirt, and I had my medals. I said, "Listen, mate, look, I, I get it," and I showed him the bright medals. I said, "I get it," and immediately, boom, he was down. Because the last thing I want to do is was lock up the victim, and it's happened on many occasions in different ways. Obviously, not just the needles. I, I use my mouth. I, I, I get rapport, and and, and sometimes you got to go hands on. But I'll never forget this other one. This is, this is a good story. I think I told it on another show. Um, this big mouldy guy, I think he was huge fellow, 120 kilos. Uh, he wasn't. He was doing something. I had to go up to him and stop him. Had to change his mind from what he was doing. Didn't want to lock him up. He started to arc up a little bit, and I pulled the handcuffs and went. Listen, mate, jail, no jail, no jail, no jail, up to you. <laughs> you know, no jail was, all right, yeah, this move on order, and you move on, or handcuffs. <laughs> and I remember being a bit funny with it. And, and why not? You know, you don't, want to, you don't want to ever say to someone, we can do this the hard way or the easy way, because they're going to smash you and it's going to be a fight. Now, how was that? Because when I think of New Zealand, I got to, to visit there um, about 22, 23 years ago. I'm absolutely beautiful island. And you know, I did so many amazing things from skydiving to caving underground in the rivers and you know climbing glaciers and snowboarding. And one of the last days of winter it was sheer ice. You should never put a snowboard on an ice. But anyway, another story. <laughs> but, you know, beautiful people. But also when you look at some of the countries that the British went to, um, they really were horrendous to the people. But I always joke they must have got to New Zealand and then, you know, these monsters met them at the, the beaches and they were like, uh, hello, <laughs> do, you want to, do you want to share this island with us? So, you know, but I think of the Maori, the Pacific Islanders, I mean, these are just giant human beings. So with that kind of defensive tactics um, lens and, and the, the combative lens, you know, what, what were the challenges when you had some of these incredibly huge human beings that you needed to detain? Obviously, we talked about de-escalation, but, you know, when you did have to go hands-on. I don't think it really gets to that state. If, you, if you're face-to-face them, it doesn't really get to that state. Um, the reason why that population um, tends to have some kind of respect, they, 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 had, they were taught respect. So if you show respect to them and show some kind of logic, Sure. If they're off the head on drugs, that's, that's very different. And you just, you smash them straight away and it's it's all in. Everybody's all on. Um, the first crackhead I took down was a skinny white guy. It took five of us. I put, a, I put, a, I put, I grabbed his wrist and I thought, no problem. Went to movement. Uh-oh. 
and five us to put them down. The, the strength they have is phenomenal. But a taser does wonders, my friend, is the answer. <laughs> a taser can do the job. But, yeah, I, I didn't have to put any, any of the big guys down so much. Um, um, or if you're getting into the melee, I just choke someone out straight away from behind. They don't know you come. Like one time I've come around this corner. I've heard this noise. My partner and I, we're, we're three up. My partner and I have walked around this corner and chatting to some people. We hear this noise back where we come from. Our other other guy uh, was still around there. I've come around and this this cop has got his nose plastered across his face and he's pointing at some tall guy. This guy's like six foot three and I'm not. <laughs> this guy, the first thing he knows is I've jumped on his back and, and choked him down. But when he's gone to the ground, he's, he's, he's not resisting. I didn't choke him out. I just said, listen, mate, I don't know what's going on at all. Don't resist. I'm restraining you for your safety and the safety of everybody else around you. Uh, you're not under arrest. If, if it turns out it's not you, I'll unrestrain you. It's no problem. I was talking to him like that in his ear. But if he, you know, the first thing he knew was I was on his back choking him. If you're in the melees, it's an easy one. Or the taser, like I said, does wonders as well. So you have, uh, you know, some experiences wearing a law enforcement uniform. What made you decide to transition to fire? Oh, the hours uh, you guys do, or us guys now, the hours I heard were amazing. So uh, we were on some horrendous hours, and that was it. I didn't know what a fireman did at all, seriously, and I just kept on uh, going through the process of applying. We're busy in police. Yep, I've done that test online, and we're going back to, to locking people up, and, uh, and then it turned out, oh, you've got a spot. Oh, have I? I better find out what you guys do. And then I went to the, uh, the training school. So you mentioned a little while ago about the the contrast between the fitness and and um, professionalism versus fire. I'm sure you work alongside some incredible humans, but culturally, what was the difference? Yeah, at the training school was different. I mean, we're all the same mindset now. Fire does a better job of filtering than police, way better, because um, uh, we're all the same mindset. We're, we're not the same people, um, but the same mindset. Um, you know, when I, I joined the fire school, the, um, the the head of it was an ex, ex-military guy. He sat me down at like week six, of, I think 12 weeks. He said, oh, Damien, you know, we thought you, you were going to top this course. Um, you know, what's going on? And I was just having struggles um, because there was a – it's a bit paramilitary run over here, a bit wannabe. The instructors are a bit shouty. It's changed now. Um, and and uh, and not be able to back it up at all, and I just wasn't um, wasn't figuring it out. And then it's it's a slower pace. The the fire is literally you're not running into the fire. You don't either cop. You don't run to a fight either. It's a slower pace. It's a different thing. And when when he sat me down and had a chat, I sort of realised okay, just sit back a bit more. Don't try and and be that bullet so much. So it was very difficult to to deal with um, because of the training standards um, and and. And also their training was nowhere near what it should have been in the military and in the police as well. It's uh, first thing is demonstration. Here, watch this way for a demonstration. And you watch four guys in black go rushing up to a building, place a charge on the door, blow that, boom. Okay, right, you see that? Right, now this is them going to do it slowly for you. This show and tell. Okay, now we're going to break that down and do this part of that over and over. My first time with breathing apparatus on you'd probably be horrified by this um because i know the british train so much better my offside was from barnsley um 
Uh, we got thrown into a building and said, right, you've got to go do this and this, keep your left hand on the building and do a left-hand search and, and go. And we'd never shown what to do. And the instructor's barking at you in the middle, what are you doing, Porter? What are you doing there? Um, and didn't know what was going on. And I, I understand some of the things they were trying to achieve, you know, put them under stress and, and make you learn. But it was not a learning environment. It was it was, uh, it was silly. So I found it difficult to deal with because it wasn't didn't come from a actual sense of professionalism. But that said, those officers who were teaching us, that was how they were taught back in the day. It was very, uh, very unprogrammed and they were taught on the job. They learnt on the job, those guys. When I went through my fire academy, years later I ended up working with some of those people. And it was amazing how the biggest peacocks were actually the worst firefighters in real life and the calm guys that i found myself kind of drawn to the way that they did teach the way you know obviously they're not going to let you screw up they're going to reprimand you but it's not like you said shouty drill sergeant-esque um those were the great firefighters so it's funny you know you you fast forward 10 years you've you've been around you've seen seen something not as much as them because they were teaching you they've been firefighters longer but you know, the, the reputation of a couple of these individuals in their own departments was not the stellar superhero that they were masquerading on the drill ground. Yeah, ego, uh, I, I say with how not to die, uh, you know, ego will get you killed and, and same thing. And, and uh, well, one of those uh, officers um, was an officer at my uh, at my fire station, not on my shift. Um, there's crossovers, so one of the times we did attend a job with him, uh, two times, I'll tell you this story. Because you always learn from everybody's um, uh, mistakes and, and successes. Uh, we were called to a private alarm. And what that means for people is um, uh, it's not a like a business alarm. It's a, a private security company has monitored an alarm. And we were going to this, and he didn't put the lights or sirens on. Because in his experience, rightly so, in his experience perhaps, a private alarm didn't mean anything. So why put the public at risk with the big red machine of death hammering through the streets? We get there, and what it is, is an old woman has had a fire on her uh, kitchen bench and tried to put it out with fly spray. <laughs> a flamethrower. Yeah, it went out, but also it could have not went out. It could have gone horrendous. And we looked back at him, and we just went, nah, mate, you, you, need, you, you should have made a better decision here because this could have gone fucking right up the... Uh, right up the curtains that it was right next to and it would have been horrendous. We would have been dealing with something very different. And, you know, he's, he's, he was too eager. He's out there. He's retired. He's too egotistical to, um, to, to say it at the time, but he sort of realised in arrears. And he was a, 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 a bully's a wannabes. They really are. He's a bit of a wannabe bully. And, uh, yeah, he, he had a piece of humble pie there. And you're right. They, they're not the best people because they're, they're throwing their ego out there, which, we another tenant, you know, I've said one already. The next one of the the third tenants is human human humility. Yep, absolutely. The last place I worked at um, protected a theme park here in Florida, a very famous one. Um, and oh, so, your fire station. so, have you? I've, I've been to Orange County Fire Station just around the corner from that theme park. Oh, okay, yeah, that would be thirty. God, what is it? Is it thirty two? But yeah, yeah, so I know exactly what it is. So it's funny, we would actually drive by them to go on calls because they had this weird annex system where they'd drive through our park to go to some of their calls and we'd drive past their streets to go to some of it was It was oh, so wow. back-assward. But, but, um, but yeah, so they would have alarms go off 
but it was i mean the safest place their their fire prevention system in you know the parks is is excellent so it get canceled the the alarm would say it's no longer an alarm and they would still send us to go in a vehicle yeah. to stand there and go there's no alarm you know what i mean so <laughs> so you have complacency but i understand the other side you know you can't get complacent if it's a simple alarm but if you've got a well monitored system where there's security guards and all this stuff no one's seeing any fire smoke anything then yeah that's not the time to go license sirens you know tearing through the streets as you said in in the the red death machine you got to be clever i tell you we went to one um, alarm call um it's at a university, and the universities are so big, you always get it. The, the security guards know. The security guard vehicle goes to the alarm um, activation point, and then a security guard scout vehicle, lead vehicle, goes to the uh, main gate to guide you in. And we go flying. So the alarm's gone off. We go flying to this thing we, uh, under lights and sirens, and there's no, there's no escort vehicle. And... We've got a map. We figure out where we're going very quickly. We get to this uh, location, and the escort vehicle sort of, or some security guard turns up and he goes, "What's going on?" They hadn't even had the alarm. And um, I've driven the truck, and my two guys have got out to go investigate with the, the boss. And I'm thinking, I'm just sitting there going, oh, "It's just an alarm. Whatever." They'll come back and tell me. One of the guys come running back, and he gets the whole our whole thing a bottle of water. Which is in the fridge, and take and it goes running out and say, "What's going on?" I says, uh, "There's been an explosion." I'm like, "What?" And um, long story short, um, some workers uh, there working on the high voltage had um, had blown. One of the guys had blown himself up um, um, with massive amount of voltage, and um, so we've got to start calling everybody in, ambulance, anybody else. And I jump out. I, I know my first aid pretty well. And this guy's blown, he's like a sausage skin. He's blown, uh, he's a hard Viking guy. He's blown a lot of his skin off. But yeah, that was from an alarm call. And we're, we're dousing his uh, burns down. The medic comes along, we get a line into his ankle of all places because the only place that had skin on. But, you know, an alarm call can go from what you said, standing there, there's no alarm, to literally life and death. And um, you've got to treat it as such. But what you've got to be able to do is be able to step up when it isn't that, that, Hundred times it's been nothing. But you got to be able to step up, and uh, I've been I've learned from other people's uh, things. And I'm lucky that we've done it right at the time. But um, yeah, I hope that helps someone else that that needs it. Listen to this right now. Yeah, complacency kills hundred percent. I've been on one. We were we were absolutely ready for this, but we went to a car fire. So again, you're thinking, all right, you know, pull the front jump line, and you know, you just knock it down, and that's it. Mop it up, and you're good to go. But no, it was a car fire along with four other cars, actually three other cars, um, on fire in a carport underneath a wooden apartment complex building. Oh, so, yeah. you know, you're talking again from from transitioning. But I've also seen the other side where I've been with a medic and he's like, oh, this is a frequent flyer. We don't need anything. And then you get in there and I, I'm carrying something anyway because I'm not, you know, not going to ignore you know, I'm still going to hold myself to a standard. And then they're scrambling for other equipment because that one person, like you said, that you've been on 99 times, the 100th time, it was the real deal. So, yeah, I mean, there's a huge cautionary tale there. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned, obviously, the electrocution. You're in Western Australia now as a firefighter. What have been some of the other career calls? Have you, have you been pulled to any of the, the uh, wildland fire side or are you specifically municipal? Yeah, that's why I've got the leg up. Um, 
we had our biggest fire of, of any time um, about two years ago, um, and that was full on. It was actually arson. We, we, we found out later on. Um, uh, I can't remember the specifics uh, now, but um, it was hundreds of houses lost. Um, so we do, we're career firefighters. We're not volunteer firefighters. The volunteer firefighters are 90% bush only, but um, our job at that was um, to go and we, our job is to protect the buildings really um, by having to put out the fire in the bush. But we're on the roads because we're in Scania's. We're on the roads protecting the houses, trying to put out what you can. And we roll with a, a Scania, two guys in a Scania fire truck and a, a four-wheel drive light tanker behind. So your crew's actually in the in that, um, a four-man crew uh, all up. Um so yeah, been on. We, we do both bush and and uh, and everything uh, hazmat, uh, rescue, car rescue, car crash, everything there is. Um, <laughs> it's funny you say, "What do we do?" So, uh, you know, which ones do you do? We're out getting lunch one day about eleven o'clock in early lunch, and um, we've got a, a data terminal. Our jobs come through on the data terminal, and sometimes on the radio. But they they had the the data terminal first, and this data terminal comes up with a list of about 10 fire trucks, so you know it's a big deal. But it was to this, um, like, a GPS place three and a half hours away. <laughs> and, like, we, we look at it and go, is, is this a real job? What's going on? We ring up on the radio. So, you know, we think you've sent us through a wrong call here. It's obviously for three and a half hour drive away. Um, what's the go? They go, no. It's actually a real call. We need all you 10 fire trucks to go and form up at this fire station, which is about 30 k's away, form a strike team. There's been a massive amount of lightning strikes up near the, in, the, in the middle of nowhere, and the wind's pushing it towards this, this, um, this township in the coast. We've never been done before. I was, I was stunned. So we, it's an army of fire trucks under lights and sirens going to this form-up point of this fire station. Um, we all get together, a quick um, five-minute um, uh, warning order. The bosses even don't even know much. They know kind of what I told you. And then we all go and form up again. And as we're going up, we see this, like, mushroom clouds of smoke. And it was amazing. It was We've gone from in the city, we probably responded to a couple of little, uh, little calls, getting lunch to three-and-a-half-hour drive under lights and sirens to protect this, um, this township um, from from this thing and we had we had a Hercules coming in dropping a fire retardant we had every asset known to man and uh, and it's turned out we we pushed the fire around that township somehow and it went to the coast around it it was, it was a really interesting uh, job now what was the ripple effect of that I think I forget who it was I had um, another Australian firefighter a while ago and I, I apologize if they're listening um, I'm just blanking on the name at this moment that's what happens when you have 800 <laughs> conversations um, but you know the 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 magnitude of the fires you know the the devastation the fires caused I had uh, one of the dispatchers from the Paradise fire in, in California and the devastation and the loss of life there was horrendous but in Australia you also think about all the wildlife that was killed so with you, you know, looking through an Australian firefighter's eyes, did you witness a, a ripple effect on the responders themselves after that? That one, that one specifically was easy. Like it went past every uh, structure, so nobody was hurt. 
no, no structures damaged, and it was just um, just bush that actually needs to burn and be regenerated. And the wildlife can can push out left and right fairly well. The the whole town was evacuated. They freaked out. There was a lot of fear in the civilian population, but no damage. But the one earlier, the the one where I um, uh, rolled, well, it turns out I broke my ankle at. at um, there was a massive amount of devastation, and I I saw that firsthand because we went back to that area two days later, and we were doing a damage assessment, and we saw people waiting us on their driveways, waiting for the insurance assessors to come through. It was horrendous. We saw little kids there with their uh, their prams and their little uh, little kid uh, um, bikes and things. Um, God, it's it's destroying. Um, with the wildlife, our wildlife here is not as is the same as over east, who you probably interviewed. Uh, their wildlife is right next to the city, um, whereas ours is just bush. There's not a lot of wildlife. There'd be kangaroos and things, but we're not full of koalas and, and endangered species over here. It's, it's very sparse. We're the most isolated city in the world, Perth, surrounded by literally what you saw on Crocodile Dundee, but the the um, the desert part of it, not all the beautiful waterfalls and things here. So. Not much ripple effect on the one I said, but a lot of ripple effect on the one where it destroyed hundreds of homes. Um, and that was hairy. It was the hairiest times any of us have, have been in there as well. Well, I kind of skipped over this a little bit. And I think it's actually pertinent because if I remember the conversation that you had on the Spotter Up podcast, it seemed like it was a somewhat recent thing for you. A lot of us in these professions, there's, there's a cumulative effect of multiple elements you've got you know childhood trauma that i mentioned a lot of people do have um then you have the actual position that you go into so now you you're seeing and doing some horrendous things depending on what uniform you're wearing you have you know in good organization support bag organizations you may have stress or even betrayal um you know you've got sleep deprivation which is huge i mean one of the real elephants in the room in the mental health conversation now at 49 years old, when you look back, did you have any kind of mental health struggles? And if so, what were your negative coping mechanisms? And then what were the tools that you found uh, to heal yourself or to keep healing yourself? Yeah, great question. And I did touch on the spotter up specifically because of what he was trying to achieve there and help others with mental health. Um, look, I've been pretty open talking about it, particularly with, with the people I've had on the show and, and relating, and especially with or Secure Foundation. It was amazing. And they're, a, they're an organisation that helps special forces uh, veterans that you know, are going to kill themselves in, in, with mental health. Um, cumulative is the word, one word I could take out from what you said. Uh, now knowing how mental health works and, 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 and having done a lot of, of work around that, you essentially got this, this wall Imagine a wall of resilience, and you got all this stuff coming at the wall. Like imagine like a dam, and it's just pitting on the dam wall, pitting on the dam wall, and pitting, pitting, pitting. And, and it, the dam wall is just as high the whole time, but it's getting uh, it's getting um, weakened, it's just pitting into it. Little shots are being fired at it, and and that's cumulative through through your life. And you deal with it fairly well, and maybe you build up build up some of that pitting, and you, you grow some of it back. But um, when that dam wall breaks and you don't know what it's going to break from, it'll, it can break from literally the straw breaking the camel's back. Um, and it's, it didn't happen on that day. It happened from all that pitting, everything hitting it more and more and more. And then suddenly the, the world falls away and you, you're in that hole. 
Uh, for me, it would have been transitioning. I never, you know, you asked that question, what made you decide to, to I can't remember to quote you perfectly, but move on or, or transition. And I never transitioned out of the military. I, I, I was in Australia, not by choice, by uh, the sort of circumstances. And I never chose to leave the special forces as, okay, I've done my time. I want to leave my doing job. So for years that, that dwelled on me, um, things that helped me with that physiologically was, was using ketones to help my mental health because um, it drops anxiety down so much. Um, uh, but pretty much every day, James, for about five or six years, every day I wanted to go get on a plane, get back home and, and wanted to throat chop someone because you're, you're a bit angry and, and, and you want to go back home. Um, what helped me deal with it the most would have been um, actually getting some help. So if I work back from the, the positive thing, getting some help, working with psychologists, working with um, uh, veterans, interviewing people on the show um, and talking it through, that, that talking realisation is, is super important. Um, negative coping mechanisms, um, using alcohol, withdrawal, um, all of those things. My damn wall was bursting was from betrayal um, uh, or a sense of betrayal, a sense of um, uh, moral injury there. But, yeah, you, you, you naturally use coping, um, negative coping mechanisms. It, that's natural to do that. Same as in combat. It's natural for, you know, in France the other day, it's natural to, to freeze. I don't blame people for freezing. There's natural ways you protect yourself as a human. But... Um, Educating myself on mental health, working with um, professionals, um, all those things were the, the right way to deal with it. And, and talking like this as well, um, talking with different people who have been through it. Um, I found, you know, talking with my firefighter friends was was helpful in, in ways, but because they're in the job, um, also slightly unhelpful. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned France, so that's a good segue to how not to die and some of the perspectives that you're offering the world now. That was such a horrific video to watch and for people listening that didn't see it there was a um just a psycho basically running around a french playground and stabbing children and parents randomly so talk to me about how you decided to get into the world of educating and training whether people are in uniform or civilians to just be more resilient and more capable out in the real world yeah look I haven't watched that video yet. I can't watch that video. I don't want to until I have to watch it for educational purposes. If someone asks me specifically, hey, he did this move, what should I do? Um, it's horrific. I've got a real thing for kids and, and babies. Um, I've been teaching self-defense for 22 years, and it's military unarmed combat, what we learn in the Special Forces uh, and New Zealand military, I've converted to civilian self-defense. I've been teaching that for 22 years. Terrible at marketing. A lot of people don't, don't want to know about self-defense and uh, they probably don't want to learn what I want to teach them. However, when I, I titled it How Not to Die and I realized that showing someone to how to lock their door in their car and avoid a carjacking, and that's not scary, then it actually sort of took off. So I, I, you know, I'm How Not to Die guy. It's, it's all over the... Um, uh, the interwebs, and I really love being able to help someone save their own life or, or not get hurt. Uh, I've always uh, 
bit against bullies. I always want to empower someone. Uh, if they didn't have to go through what I did when I was 13 um, and could actually step up. So my boy at seven years old, he's done jujitsu for a couple of years. Um, confrontation is not a thing to him. He's been exposed to it. He didn't get flipped around by black belts and judo when he was that age. So, um, yeah, I've been teaching for quite some time successfully, but I want to teach it as a business around the world. Um, and I get messages each week, not through arrogance that I'm saying this, but they'll, they'll literally say, you saved my life, or I, I showed this to my wife and it actually turned out she had to do it. On, on the interwebs, I show all the simple things like here's how to hold your keys, here's where to look, here's how to how to leave a place safely, here's how to get into your car, here's how to approach your car in a car park in the day, here's how to get out of your car if you go to a crowded um, uh, car park and so on. And look, I just love it. Um, really, really do. And uh, it's it's based on the old World War II uh, SOE uh, commando uh, things that you have to learn immediately. It's not jujitsu. It's not martial arts. So my boy, is seven years old, knows he could kill me in jujitsu if if I wanted to to do that. But I'm not going to. If I'm in a confrontation, a, a surprise, violent confrontation, isn't you and I, James, agreeing to to fight each other? A surprise, violent confrontation takes two three seconds, and and it could be multiple attackers. I mean, look at the two MMA fighters in uh, USA. They, one of them put, got put in a coma by some some crackhead woman with a two by four when uh, they decided to to try and fight two people these two MMA fighters and it turned out to be seven so there's no such thing as a fair fight and I will teach you how not to die with what I do so where can people find the the website to sign up for the courses that you offer uh, yeah literally um, hownottodie.com.au um, uh, google how not to die guy It'll come up straight away and there'll be links to that from my Instagram, how not to die guy on Instagram and, and, and just reach out. You know, I was just talking to someone yesterday, ha- happy to answer any questions. And the France one, it got me so hard. I'd shot a video on it. I, I cut a video on it and I didn't touch on the specifics, but I did talk about you've, that freeze is normal. All those women did exactly what their human instincts have taught them to do. Unfortunately, it meant their babies got stabbed. Unfortunately, men that they couldn't even grasp their baby, run up to them like you and I are trained to run towards danger. But you need to be exposed to it. And I, I cut that video. I was so impassioned. And then I've, I've just seen Nottingham. Nottingham, two people, three people stabbed and, and, then, and, then, um, and then hit by a vehicle. Same thing. So it's not just – it's brought it to the playground. It's brought it to a night out. It's brought it to a, a delivery driver that night in Nottingham. Um violence, bad people wish to do us harm. And I I hope never to have to use violence. I hope you never have to use violence. But I want you to know what to do if it visits you. When you see the video, I'll be intrigued to get your perspective because, you know, you see some of these attacks. Um, I mean, I guess the 9-11 is a perfect example. They were practicing with knives. They were making sure they couldn't get disarmed while they were taking over the cockpit. The French one, for some reason, looks extremely clumsy. And sadly, if someone had bum-rushed that guy, I got a strong feeling that would have been nipped in the bud straight away. I mean, you know, obviously, he's still carrying an edge weapon. You could still get stabbed. But compared to some of the other attacks, machete attacks, um, that you see, you know, other perpetrators carry out, that particular one, I can't help feel that, you know, he... 
the moment he was challenged, he probably would have been taken down, which is, I think, makes it even sadder. If just there'd been that right person with the right mindset, it probably would have been over as quickly as it started. But, you know, instead, seven people were stabbed, five of which were children. You said that exactly right. I, I think I was interviewing, uh, interview, someone interviewed me on that or someone commented on something about it. I watched the video for about a minute. I didn't watch the stabbing. And I watched um, a man run up to him with a backpack. And then I watched this guy, the, 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 the attacker, he even changed hands with a knife, which is actually a skill. And, um, and the person uh, that, I just, yeah, it must have been a person that was interviewing me. Uh, he said, oh, why didn't someone just do something? I said, look, you were brainwashed in the military to run towards the sound of gunfire. You know, if a car crashes through your, your, your building right now, James, you would actually turn around to it and see what's going on. Everybody else, when a car crashes through the side of your building, is going to run away. So there's no way in hell any of those women would have thought to bun rush him. The man with the backpack actually went towards him, and but then he backed off. He could have stopped it then and there, and and good on him. Uh, but also, I don't blame him as well. Um, but I do wish. Now, everybody knows it can happen on a playground. Let's not put our heads in sand. Now, when I used to go to the playground with my boy, I'm looking for the weirdo. You know, everybody looks out for that weirdo or, and, and we'll push the kids away. And we look out for our kids. Uh, is our kid um, playing okay with the other kid? Is the, is the other kid not letting our kid play on the, on the swing? You know, that's what we're thinking. Or does our kid need a nappy? We were never thinking about a guy going to come stab them. But now, it's, it's in there. We have to think about it. So... We have to take ownership. So or every mum, nanny, dad, please. I said on my video, it wasn't a sales pitch. I said, do something. Learn something so you can actually take action and then you're more empowered because it is a reality now. Well, just while on that subject, someone's going to kind of throw at you as well. Obviously, you are in Australia, so a different country, even though the perpetrator was from that nation. The Christchurch attacks. You're originally, you know, from New Zealand. You're proud to be of that country. Just talk to me about that through your lens. Well, I, I can. And, and again, if if Condition White isn't inside your mosque praying, I don't know what Condition White is. And if you, for those listening, look up the Cooper's Color Codes. Um, look, I was actually messaging a New Zealand SAS guy at the time when it happened. We were having a chat about something unrelated. And he said, oh, I've just heard nine people have been, been shot in, um, in Christchurch. And um, what I loved about that story was, you know, he's gone into that mosque. He's going to do three mosques. He's gone to the initial mosque and, uh, and shot all those people. And then he's got into his vehicle and he's going to the next one. The police response, the SWAT teams, I just use SWAT as the generic term, they're going to the first mosque. They're flying to that first mosque, as they should, because they don't know what he's doing. Uh, the call goes out. You're looking for a, a, one male in this uh, Subaru Forester. I think they even had the license plate. Well, these other police have been training, normal police duties, not doing, they're not a specialist police. They were training to, do, to go into a house and, and, and clear it, doing uh, room combat or CQB, whatever you want to call it, but clearing a house. Because sometimes the first guys on the scene are the actual cops, the normal um, general duties cops. Well, they've been training in this area, and they 
every cop in the in Christchurch was being called. So they were flying to the first location, and they're flying from this other direction, and they drove past him. And the the, the partner in the passenger seat went, "Hey, is that the one?" And they've done a U turn, pulled him at gunpoint out of the car, pulled him out of the car, and not shot him and locked him up. I'm raising my voice. I'm excited because I'm so proud of those general duties, everyday police officers. Most people would have hosed him, right? This guy's the killer. They would have hosed him through the, the windscreen. They A, saw him, B, took action, C, took him out of the car, and D, used their skill to put cuffs on him. And I'm so proud of them. And they stopped him and intercepted him from the second of three mosques he uh, had targeted. So that was my take on it, uh, James, from a, a, a pretty, there's more I go into, but it was a positive outcome of such a horrible thing. But again, reality is it can come to you anywhere, anywhere. Yeah, well, I think that circles around to what we were talking about with the diligence of training when you were in SES versus some of your experiences in police and fire is I've worked for arguably one of the best fire departments in the States and one of the worst. So I've got a pretty inter interesting spectrum to, to kind of bridge and then two great departments in between, um, one horrendously under-supported by the city and the other one was just so big you had some great people, some terrible people because it was thousands of people in that department. But um, the, the bar from the hiring process through to probationary year through to you know the rest of your career was so, so high in the good department. They protected the, um, Disney. It was Anaheim's. So they protected Disneyland on the West Coast. And, you know, we would do drills. They worked well with, with PD. They worked well with the surrounding ca uh, county. So there was low ego, high performance. Um, and it was amazing. And so had an Anaheim police officer been in that situation, I know they would have done the same thing. Now you contrast that, not picking on any particular area or agency, but some of these videos that we see of these police officers that clearly have not done any physical training, any defensive tactics training, probably fired six rounds in a range once a year, what would have been the outcome there? So in lives where, in professions where lives are truly in our hands, it might be a playground. It might be a mosque. Who knows where it's going to be? But in a, you know, 30 year, 25, 30 career, it, you will have your day. And the question is, are you ready or are you not ready? Beautiful question too, isn't it? Um, people's lives in your hands. You got to take that responsibility so, so carefully. And yeah, you have nothing, nothing, nothing. And then it's going to be the worst. Yeah. You've got to, you got to realize and, and take, um, a minimum level of capability and maintain that. Absolutely. Well, I want to just throw a few closing questions at you if you've got time. Absolutely. All right. So the first one I'd love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you'd love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. I love the book, The, the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. I guess it's related to ours in, in a way. Uh, it teaches a lot of things, The Peaceful Warrior. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, uh, you mentioned Arnie. You know, he's definitely a bit of a dick. But uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is uh, Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding. That, uh, that started me off, off well, and I think I interviewed some other um, awesome dude on, on that as well. Um, um, you know, he had a lot of good things. He had 
drive, vision, visualization, um, all those things. But um, yeah, every, the way I think the Peaceful Warrior would definitely be one. Arnold Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia Bodybuilding, maybe. Um, and uh, yeah, tough question, James. Uh, I listen to a lot of audiobooks now. Um, I'm really loving it, Nancy Wake's uh, autobiography. I actually sat next to her at the regimental dinner as well. That was uh, pretty interesting. And um, yeah, yeah, that would probably be the ones that come to mind straight away. You throw me on the spot. Who was the last person you said? Uh, Nancy Wake. So she's a very famous uh, SOE agent in, um, in World War II. But she's got an autobiography, came out in, in audiobooks as well. And I'm going to be listening to her biography as well so if anybody uh just google nancy wake and you'll have some amazing stories come up beautiful well thank you for that so the same kind of question what about a film and or documentary that you love apart from top gun (laughs) (laughs) my mind went straight to top gun maverick (laughs) for a sequel um oh Film. I'd, I'd probably go TV show. I loved. I loved Vikings. I loved. Uh, I loved that that one. That was interesting. Um, documentary. Um, no, very tough questions, my friend. Uh, thinking of those, and I, I don't have a lot of spare time to to do a lot of those things as well. Um, no, I, I would have to have to go straight to. to Ragnar Lothbrok and uh, and the the Vikings TV series that was interesting and it was very well done by by the History Channel and uh, yeah I, it was really interesting to watch. Brilliant. All right. Well, then speaking of great people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah, I think a couple of people actually. Eric Miaris is one. Eric Miaris is literally. His job was Jason Bourne. And I've got a book here of his that he sent me, thankfully. Beautiful man. Um, called Killer Elite. So maybe that's one you want to put down as a book. Killer Elite. It's the only known book about his unit. And um, I actually did, I think he did the first podcast with me. But like I said, Jason Bourne, single mission operator. That's so rare. Uh, and uh, his one role in life now is to prevent veteran suicide. He had two... Uh, friends kill themselves within uh, a couple of weeks, and uh, and that changed his purpose. That's beautiful. Um, and I mentioned All Secure Foundation, and I interviewed. I was lucky enough to interview uh, Tom and Jen Satterley, uh, uh, husband and wife. And um, Tom told this powerful story. Maybe it's something to end on. Um, it gave someone chills for sure when I said that to them or said this to them. Tom was telling me I didn't know the story. Tom's Delta Force, or if you're going to be exact, uh, CAG or uh, whatever you want to call it, the fancy names, but he's Delta Force operator. Uh, Jen was some kind of producer, and they were um, he was tasked with taking around doing some promotion filming for recruiting for them. And they've been together for a couple of weeks doing this job. He was like her minder slash fixer, whatever. And they're, and they're basically at a hotel. And uh, they've been out filming all day, and he was just a bit off. And uh, he dropped her off at the hotel, and uh, he, she goes, oh, are you coming in? And he goes, oh, yeah, i just got to make a phone call. Uh, I'll, I'll be with you in a sec. And something didn't sound right to, to her there. 
And long story short, he was going to kill himself. And he parked the car up and um, and she's she's texting him. She's going, you know, you know, uh, come on, you okay? And he, she wasn't responding to the text, which was was uh, rare of him, very very inconsistent of him. And uh, she knew something was wrong. And he had a gun in his mouth. And she's gone. She had a, a flashlight bolt, flashbulb moment. Um, hey, we're all at the bar because they all go to the bar every night. You're at the bar. We're at, we're all at the bar. You're late. And he had the gun in his mouth. He looked at the text message, and he's never laid in his life to anything. And that got took his gun in his mouth. And by training and default and, and programming, he didn't want to be late, so he went down to the bar. And uh, without that text message, he would have had a, a forty-five round through his through his brain. And uh, and now he's in a, in a much better place. He helps others and. Uh, I would recommend you speak to Tom and Jen Satterley. Well, I've actually, I wanted you to finish the story because it needs to be heard again, but I had them on about two years ago now. And the sad irony is about a year ago, um, a retired Green Beret who was working um, with a mental health organization here in Ocala, he had tried to rally up this mental health convention and all the local first responders, you know, police and fire and EMS were going to be able to go and it was going to be this amazing event and Tom and Jem were to come and talk. And when it came time for the people that said they would support them for this conference to simply write the check, they were like, oh, actually, we don't, we don't have the money. So, so many times when it comes to, oh, yeah, we, you know, we love our veterans, we love our first responders. It's great what they call that virtue signaling. It looks great until you're actually asked to put the rubber on the road. And that time and time and time again is what I see is when it comes to actually making the difference, you look around and you're like, where the fuck did everyone go? So it's so sad because I would have not only talked to them on the podcast, but I would have got to actually finally meet them face to face last year. And so I hope one day it comes to fruition. But yeah, they're, they're phenomenal human beings. They really are. They really are. And, um, yeah, all these people are. And I'll just finish on. Can I finish on a story? Please. Say as many as you want. Um, look, I was chatting on Messenger with a, a former uh, guy from my squadron, from the counter-terrorist squadron, um, and um, he's in New Zealand. And, you know, typing away isn't exactly chatting. But uh, we're chatting away about some subject. And I knew he'd, he'd been through some mental health issues, but you never knew really know uh, from socials and um and i said to him hey uh, if you ever need anything just reach out you know and uh end of the conversation and about 20 seconds later something clicked in my brain I went, holy fuck hey and i went to his name you are reaching out i'm so sorry you did reach out just then hey and we started a conversation again Reaching out for males, please, if you listen this far on the show, please listen. <laughs> a, a guy reaching out doesn't mean like a, a woman to a woman, hey, I'm having a really hard time. Could we have a chat? That's not the way it goes with us. Hey, James, how are you going? That could be reaching out. So if, if you get the chance to connect with someone uh, from your old life or, or maybe you haven't heard from for a while, that is them as a male reaching out from my limited experience. But that was my personal experience and I, I kicked myself and I fixed it immediately and it turned out to be really cool. So uh, please, if that's helped someone again, then uh, then I, I, I like to think that I've done my job. Yeah, no, I love that because I think 
that's a kind of brush off comment sometimes, even from organizations, you know, the chief saying, oh, I've got an open door policy. If you're struggling, I'm here for you. Well, that's empty until you've connected with that person, you know, so I would argue, you know, creating an environment for someone to feel comfortable is a very, very important thing, but also looking around. You know, Steve is normally pretty jovial. He just, just seems off. I've got this gut feeling. Act on that gut feeling. And another huge one that this is, again, none of the, the awakening I've had this last seven years of doing this has been just phenomenal. But one of the reoccurring things with Tom and everyone else that's been on here that's had the rope around their neck, the gun in their mouth, speeding towards the, the, the motorway pillar, whatever it is, is that feeling of burden. And so that old school, oh, suicide is selfish, you know, it's, um, you know, it's cowardly. We've got to understand that their brain is so miswired at that point that you've got someone who signed on the line saying they would die for another, for a stranger in a military uniform or police uniform. And now they're so miswired, they believe they're a burden. You say, oh, just think about your family. I am thinking about my family. They would be better off without me. So that is one thing I wish it would be on a lot of these kind of, you know, posters and things. If your friend is saying or you ask them, do you feel like a burden? That is another huge red flag saying, oh, here's a helpline for you. I'm here for you. Reach out. You know, like you said, firstly, check yourself. Did they just reach out? Absolutely love that. And secondly, you know, be the person asking someone. And don't ask them once. How are you doing? We all say, oh, I'm good. No, how are you really doing? That second, <laughs> how are you doing? It's amazing how powerful that is. Well, Rick Hogg, warhog.com, and I'll put that out there because his Instagram got, got cancelled. Rick Hogg, who worked with um, uh, Pat and anybody else, uh, he said that exact thing. He said, ask me how I'm doing. And he said, I'm good. That is a red flag. I'm good. No, 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 no. And, and he may be a great person to chat to as well. Um, great guy. Uh, he said immediately, if someone says I'm good from a man, holy cow, he just goes, what's going on, man? What? Because he should go, like today, like I was awake at three, tried to get to sleep till four, and I did, and then I'm up with pain. I'm great. I'm really enjoying this this, this conversation. I've been moving my foot around. I'm great. I'm happy, you know, but not I'm good. That's that's like a, I'm fine, you know, and, he, he's, and he, he he picked up on that and he went, you know, you've got to dive in. So I love that you, you brought it up as well. Yeah. So like when you ask your wife, what's wrong? And she says nothing. You know, that's oh, there's oh, everything oh, oh, oh. but nothing. <laughs> it's the opposite of nothing. Like running to the car. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online. What do you do to decompress? Oh, gosh. I've, I've never been interviewed like this. You have the most amazing questions. And I'm not... I don't blow smoke. I would love to see if someone knows where they're saying come from blowing smoke up someone's ass. (laughs) You know where it comes from? A prison somewhere, probably, I'm guessing. No, blowing smoke (laughs) was the treatment for someone drowning, uh, for someone who drowned. They used to get, they used to get um, (laughs) a a, um, a, a, a baffles full of smoke and blow it up their bum. (laughs) That's how I got fired as a lifeguard for that very thing. <laughs> what do I do to decompress? Um, look, uh, this this social layer and uh, Dr. Dan Pronk, uh, special forces doctor, he wrote a book called The Resilience Shield. Actually, that was one that was phenomenal. Um, uh, talks about the layers. 
and this is a social layer. You know, I've got to have great communication with you, but I'm, I'm getting my my social fix. It's two hours of of communicating with someone. This is one way um, to decompress. Um, but actual decompressing after a, a tricky job, um, self care. Um, you know, that might be me. I had to learn what is self care. I had to develop that in my brain. Um, and I started off with simply, and I've said on one show, I think. I like chocolate. I like the outdoors. Don't have much outdoors here in Perth. So I went to a bakery and I get a chocolate eclair and I go to the lake that was right beside the bakery and, and sit down by the lake and eat this chocolate eclair. And that was learning my own self-care. Um, now it might now I've developed that. It might be having a bath and, and watching a, a TV uh, series episode that's uh, mindless, um, but it, it, that's self-care. Um Self-care isn't what um, my, my special forces psychologist, uh, Ali uh, Bodjalova, uh, taught me. Self-care isn't, Damien, going and adding 30 more minutes to your run. <laughs> That's not self-care. Um, you know, it might be um, uh, listening to uh, Pat, Pat Mack and CJ on, on a, a Friday, but decompressing um, a coffee with a friend, um, a surprise coffee with a friend uh, could be one um, as well, but trying to f do some form of self-care. Um, sometimes it's the ice bath as well. Um, that keeps my head straight. But you've, you've got to find something you enjoy. And if you don't know what, then just 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 start something. It's got to, it's got to involve getting outside and it's got to be not exercise-related, I suggest. Beautiful. It's funny that recently, I, I mean, I've, it's amazing seeing so many people enjoying the ice baths but it's kind of made me you know tongue-in-cheek say if you know if a person takes an ice ice bath and they don't film it did it really happen like the the wood <laughs> in the forest because all my friends take them but they film every single time they take an ice bath and it's like is it possible you could do it without your camera just try it that might be even more ex you know extended self-care leave your fucking phone in the house <laughs> hey Kim, i'll tell a story about an ice bath i screwed this up um because i love i love baths i love a hot bath so I, I, I did a hot bath one day and it was, it was hot. And I went to get in the, in the ice bath. But I was quite hot in the ice bath, right? And I normally only handled three or four minutes. And I was, oh, this is quite warm. It's no big deal. And I got about five minutes. And I moved around a bit and got the cold water back onto me. Anyway, I'd screwed myself over because I started shivering in there. Okay, no problem. I'll just get out. And I stood up and I started uncontrollably shivering. Because <laughs> my temperature, it, it, a regulator had gone off, and I thought, uh oh, this is not good. And I started to get out of it, and I was involuntary shivering, starting to get nauseous, pukey. <laughs> I managed to use my mental strength to be able to, to, to waddle in to the house and get back in the bath. But <laughs> I almost gave myself um, second stage hypothermia, <laughs> and I, was, I wanted to puke my guts, and I, I couldn't move. <laughs> <laughs> They're horrendous. Well, if you look at the contrast therapy, at least the, the kind of prescription that I've seen, um, which makes a lot of sense to me, you know, you cause vasoconstriction, you cause vasodilation. I would add it's even better than just the cold bath alone. But usually, yeah, it's it's several minutes in a sauna and then it's only like 60 seconds or two minutes in the ice bath and then you at, get yeah. out again. So that might be yeah. why. Now we know why. <laughs> yeah. Don't go and try and push yourself. It was eight minutes of, of, of near-death experience. I really killed myself <laughs> With an ice bar. <laughs> so I'm sure people are, you know, would love to follow you. You talked about the website already. Where on social media can people follow you and communicate with you? 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, How Not to Die Guy on Instagram, I think, is the easiest one. Um, I learned from a, 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 another Instagram guy who was really cool, um, video doesn't lie. And, and I can put out a, a saying, a quote or something, but it, you might take the wrong way. But I put out short videos there all the time that are hopefully are helpful. And, and you get the idea of, of, of how I am. It's, it's just how I am. But how not to die guy on Instagram will get you everywhere. Brilliant. Well, Damien, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, you know, as you kind of uh, alluded to in this conversation, you just had um, foot surgery. You've obviously had a sleepless night last night. It's your morning, my evening. We've got a thunderstorm raging out my window here. Um, but I want to thank you so much, not only for being generous with your time, but also just leading us through your story. Every single one of these conversations, you know, sometimes people are going to relive some of the, you know, the, the worst memories in their mind. But I know that the takeaways for people listening, you know, will be worthy of, of that momentary sacrifice. So thank you so much for being so generous and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for being such a, a great interviewer. It's been an absolute pleasure.